that was very difficult for her to testify. She had to, she was 10 years old. She had to go into the courtroom, swear to tell the truth, sit in the witness stand and stare at her father. How the different members of the law enforcement and justice system, how they get involved in cases at different times. And it can have really different effects on Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multi-dimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds, and co-host of Real Crime Profile. And my co-host on Best Case, Worst Case is my colleague and great friend, Francie Hakes. Hi, thanks, Jim. So glad to be here and starting a new venture and podcast with you. Well, that's great. And I'm really excited about you being here with me and that fact that we're doing this best case, worst case together. The fact is, Francie and I have worked together a long time. We've worked in the same field for many, many years. We didn't get to work together personally until later in our careers. And we do consulting on cases now together as well as work in the entertainment industry. And a lot of people don't know it, and I know you don't like to toot your own horn, but you recently testified in front of Congress about crimes against children cases, and that's really awesome. So tell us a little bit about your career. Um, I'm a former state and federal prosecutor, and for my whole long career, I have specialized in crimes against children, both online and in the real world. And I think, to your point... Cases can be best case, worst case, all at once. And I think that's because by the very nature of child abuse, for example, or murder, um, these cases are worse for someone. Yes. And I think it's, it's an interesting perspective. While obviously the most important thing is to give uh, voice to the victims who often don't have a voice in the justice system, either they've been murdered or their children, and we have to speak for them. I think it's also interesting to to recognize the work by the investigators and prosecutors of these cases and the toll it takes. I mean, sometimes the best case might be the worst case for the investigator and prosecutor because you have to live through it alongside the victim. Right. And I think one of the things we should explore with this podcast is how the different members of the law enforcement and justice system, how... They get involved in cases at different times, and it can have 
really different effects on different people based on their experiences in that particular case. Very true. And one of the things I'd like to do with this podcast is for us to invite in our friends and colleagues and talk to them about their best cases and worst cases. Because even though we've had a pretty broad set of experiences over the course of our careers, there are many, many, many other perspectives out there. And we'd like to bring that to the listeners, have them get insights into all the different facets of the justice system from the commission of a crime, through the investigation, hopefully through an arrest and then prosecution. And of course, then there's always post-prosecution. There's issues that can arise in appeals and cases can get overturned and a lot of things can happen in the justice system. Or there's never a conviction. Maybe there's a, and I've, unfortunately, I've had that experience a few times where I lost and I always considered it justice lost because I always felt very righteous in the cases that I brought. I always believed in them 100% and believed the person guilty 100%. And so when a jury rejects that, um, it's interesting perspective, obviously, from the prosecutor standpoint, but also in dealing with the victims, the live victims, in the aftermath of a not guilty verdict is mm -hmm. so difficult. And it's something that I think people don't really know much about. Yeah, I think that's a great way to basically give people an insight into something that's usually done behind closed doors. Most people in the public don't see that. Of course, there are some famous cases where that happened right in front of the public's eye, like the what they call the OJ case. We like to call it the Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman case. But the fact is that that played out right in front of the public. So they got sort of a bird's eye view of how that happens. Unfortunately, it happens a lot more often than that. It does. It does. I mean, the vast majority of cases that are prosecuted, certainly the federal level and in conviction, and the conviction rate is really high. But that shouldn't mean that we don't look into and try to understand those cases that end the other way. Right. So, Francie, you just said something that was interesting, that most cases in the federal system end in convictions. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for it, but I think the primary reason, and I've seen the difference in the resources as a state prosecutor and as a federal prosecutor. And unfortunately, federal prosecutors, or fortunately for them, federal prosecutors have more resources. Um, I think the investigations tend to be more thorough. They have more time. And the same with the prosecutions. As an assistant U.S. attorney, I had a ton of time. And I usually had weeks of notice before I would go to trial on a case mm -hmm. and plenty of time to prepare for that trial. As a state prosecutor, typically, it was Sunday night by the time I had time to prepare for the case going to trial on Monday. Right. And even when in the calendar call on Monday, you know, when there's that huge scene, everyone's in the courtroom, the judge calls the cases, there may be a hundred cases on the judge's calendar for trial that day in the state system. Does not happen like that in federal. And you and I might have 20 of those cases on the calendar and really will have no idea which case is going to trial. Right. Well, I'll tell you, that's exactly my experience as a New York City prosecutor. We would go, we would have eight different judges that we'd have to appear before on Monday morning, and you could have literally two or three, even four cases that are set for trial or a hearing in front of each of those judges 
on every day. Yeah. I had over 200 cases in my caseload. You never knew which one. And I remember one of the judges was Judge Judy Scheinlin, who's now become famous for her show, Judge Judy. And she was really the toughest. And I remember doing a summation on one case, just finishing up, and her court officers escorted me to her courtroom, and she said, Mr. Clemente, call your first witness on another trial. So I had absolutely no prep time. I literally had to beg for the right to go down to my office, grab my file on the case, see if my witnesses were there, and bring them up to the courtroom. I literally had like 10 minutes to prep for that case. And that's what state prosecutors across the country have to deal with every day. Judges that don't care about whatever your sob story is. They want to clear their calendar. They want to clear their calendar. That's right. And what I think is really the true tragedy or near tragedy of that is that who suffers? I mean, sure, it's tough for the prosecutor and it's very difficult and stressful, but it's the victims. Because if I didn't really realize or didn't know the case or couldn't have foreseen the case was going to trial, I might not have had an adequate time to prepare the victim for his or her testimony on the witness stand. And that is a terrifying thing for for a victim. So yeah. it's it's not good justice. No, it isn't. It's certainly not actual justice. So we'll get back to things like that over the course of our discussions um, on best case, worst case. But I'd like to right now sort of get into, for you, Francie, what was your best case that you want to discuss right now? You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this as we were preparing and trying to figure out if I actually had a best case because, of course, specializing in child abuse and sexual abuse, uh, crimes against women and children, it's hard to think of a best case. But I definitely have one. It was my very first case. Really? My very first trial as a state prosecutor, I was fresh out of law school. I'd been in the office for two weeks. And I, like all young, you know, lawyer graduates going into a DA's office, I thought, I'm ready. I want to go to trial. That's why I went to law school, to to go to trial. So I walked into the chief assistant DA's office and I said, it's been two weeks. I haven't tried a case yet. I want to get in the courtroom. He was very Southern. This was definitely Southern justice. This was in Columbus, Georgia, which is in the sort of uh, middle eastern, middle western corner of Georgia. And he said, well, Francie, I got a case for you. And I'm quoting him exactly. And he said, it's an aggravated child molestation case. I've had it for two years. It's terrible. It's like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Oh, boy. Because you had a divorce situation where a, a, a wife filed for divorce from the husband and then the child, who was nine years old at the time, made an allegation of sexual abuse against the dad. And so there were accusations that it was the mom prompting the child to say these things, that it wasn't true. So I had five days to prepare for trial, five mm. days, which looking back now was actually a lot of time and only because my docket was so small. At that time, right. That's that right. was a luxury you never had. <laughs> never had that. that again. That's right. So five days later. So three weeks in, I tried my first case. Um, the little girl was this absolutely beautiful little red-haired girl who was 10 years old, whose father had been abusing her since she was an infant. She had an older sister, a stepsister, who, or excuse me, half-sister, who was 21, who had made allegations against the father a decade prior. And nothing happened? And nothing happened. And so I had these two, one girl and one young woman, that I had to promise justice for. 
And that was very difficult for her to testify. She had she was 10 years old. She had to go into the courtroom, swear to tell the truth, sit in the witness stand and stare at her father, whose entire family was on his side of the courtroom staring her down. Right. And her older half-sister also testified. And as is common in Southern justice, all our listeners in the South or in small towns around the country and around the world will recognize this. The defense attorney was a good old boy buddy of the judge who would say or do anything to get his clients off. And in fact, two years after this was prosecuted himself, the attorney, federally, for trafficking in drugs. Really? Yes. So he was quite a peach. That's a Southern term, I guess. Yes. Well, Georgia peaches. But he was quite a peach. And it was uh, he, he did not ascribe to what you see on TV, which is that you don't go after children. You don't go after little girls, especially if you're a male defense attorney. You have to be really gentle. Well, he was not gentle. He accused her of lying, this 10-year-old girl right on the witness stand. And you've got the jury in the box, and they're watching the child. And they expect this little girl to cry as she's describing something that she's now been describing in preparation and to detectives for almost two years. Right. But that's what the jury expects. And if and if a child doesn't perform in that way, doesn't act in an emotional way, the jury doesn't believe them. Right. And that's why, right, that now we like to have expert witnesses who are education witnesses come on and explain those dynamics. Because, again, if this child was victimized by her father, who's sitting there staring her down in court with his whole family on the, on his side, staring her down in court, she might, in order to actually hold herself together, to actually be able to testify, have to put up this incredibly thick emotional wall so that she doesn't break down. And that can end up hurting her in the eyes of the jury. Well, it does. And I used to say, this was the late 90s, I used to say that I had to prove two cases when I was trying child sexual abuse. I had to prove to the jury that anyone abused the child because child sexual abuse just wasn't well understood. People didn't want to look at it. People didn't want to think about it. So I had to prove someone abused the child. Then I had to prove that the person sitting in the box is the one who actually abused the child. And you're right. That's the problem or really uh, the main difficulty in child abuse when you have to put a child witness on the stand is this is a very public place that they're describing something that they feel ashamed by, that they feel um, embarrassed by, that that they feel scared to look at the offender. And every time back then in the 90s that prosecutors and victim advocates tried to fix that problem. You could put up a screen between the defendant and the child. You could have the child testify via video feed in another room. Every time those things that were put up to accommodate a child who was being faced by uh, an offender that she was afraid of were struck down by the Supreme Court because it violated the Confrontation Clause of the Constitution. So you couldn't do any of those things, really. We, we tried them. We didn't do it in this particular case, but those were tried and then struck down. And in those cases, of course, then you had children who had to go through the whole process again, again. when the Supreme Court struck down a case. And so for this little girl, um, she was incredibly brave. And I think one of the things that I hope made me a good prosecutor was that I was not dispassionate about these cases. 
But I think that was what made it harder for me personally was because I really believed that I was the one standing between her and the offender. I was the one who felt obliged to make a promise. I'm going to get justice for you. And so I think that adds to the difficulty and the risk of trying a case. You don't know what 12 people are going to do. And the defense attorney only has to convince one. The prosecutor, we have to convince them all to agree. 12 people who can't agree on lunch to agree on labeling someone a sex offender when, and this case was one of those cases, there is no physical evidence. There was no physical evidence whatsoever. And I just want to tell everyone who's listening, there almost never is physical evidence in child sexual abuse cases. One of the reasons is that delayed disclosure is the norm. In other words, children who grow up in a land of giants anyway are not the most powerful individuals. And when they are victimized, they feel even less powerful And they don't feel like them coming forward is going to have any result because, of course, the person who did it to them was older, more powerful, most likely an adult or in many cases an adult and somebody who had access, authority and control over them. So it's very difficult for a child to overcome that and actually come forward. And that's just one aspect of why children don't report. The fact that it is something that many times they engage in self-blame about. And many times they're victimized by somebody that they know and love and trust. And so, and also their parents, if they're not the offenders, their parents know and love and trust the offender. And so there's so many things that a child has to overcome. And that creates a situation where they'll just remain silent. Or recant, which is really common. And I was worried about that in this case, because think about what this 10-year-old girl had to go through when she uh, came forward with her allegations. She had to go through a physical exam the way adult women do every day. This 10-year-old girl had to go through the indignity of having a a physical exam to see if there were any physical signs of sexual abuse, just as a preliminary matter, not to mention everything she has to go through. So tell me more about what goes on with the victims, the whole process of the justice system. How does that affect them? Well, especially back in the 90s, the whole process of the justice system almost seemed designed to hurt victims, especially Mm -hmm. child victims. Since then, there have been put into place different things to accommodate at least a little bit children in their um, in their experiences through the justice system. But for this child in particular, she had to go through a physical exam, just like an adult woman would do. Um, she had to be interviewed multiple times by multiple people, multiple detectives. Her mother talked to her first. There were teachers involved. So the child had to tell her story over and over again. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when I became involved— I was the third prosecutor on her case. So she'd already met other prosecutors and had to go through this story and this indignity of talking again about the worst experiences of her life to a complete stranger. Right. And so since then, child advocacy centers have really endeavored to and, and actually helped tremendously in alleviating many of those issues. Well, that's right. And I'm on the board of the Child Advocacy Centers of Georgia. That's great. Um, 
And a lot of that is because I believe strongly in victim advocacy. And people like this little girl who did not have the chance to be interviewed in a child-friendly environment, which is one of the purposes of advocacy centers, being interviewed just once, even maybe being examined at the advocacy center by specially trained doctors or nurses. She had none of that back in the 90s. She had to go through the system just like an adult uh, sexual assault survivor would. Right. And the premier and probably the first and certainly the benchmark child advocacy center is actually found in Los Angeles. It's in Santa Monica. And as part of the LA Rape Treatment Center, they started Stewart House. And they've just recently expanded. It's amazing. And I was blown away when I went there and saw all the services that they have. They're they're linked up right with the hospital that's located literally around the corner from them. There's a child uh, examination room there. They have wonderful services, and they have detectives and assistant district attorneys who are actually on site every day. They work out of that building, and so they can address issues immediately. They can address issues one time and one time only, and they can actually treat the child um, like the precious person they are and not like just some, I don't know, commodity that they have to push through this system. I know that that, as a prosecutor, that was one of the most difficult things for me is seeing the system sort of re-victimize the child. And it happened most often when you had a defense attorney who was unscrupulous, but even just the harsh reality of having to prep for trial over and over and over again continuances at the last moment after they thought this was finally it, this is finally the day that I'm going to have to do this, and then it gets adjourned over and over and over again. And and eventually that's another reason why children might recant. And they might recant because of the tremendous pressures put on them by the family and loved ones or people who are on the side of the offender uh, trying to keep it quiet within the family, for example or within the community, for example. And and then there's also the, the pressures that are put on just as human beings. I mean, they're developing children, and they have to deal with the fact that they're talking about this horrible thing in public. Well, in the court processes, of course, even once you get there, even assuming all of the other things are child-friendly, the court process is never going to be child-friendly. It's the same, supposedly, for every victim and every offender. And so this child has to get on the witness stand and be questioned by me, listen to the defense attorney making objections, shouting and screaming, and then accusing her of being a liar, trying to trick her, this adult lawyer, trying to trick this 10-year-old girl, um, which it's not that necessarily hard to do. If you're a sophisticated defense attorney, if there are holes in the child's story, which she's a child, of course there are holes in the child's story. So that's what she faced, but she did it. She testified. She did an amazing job. She testified truthfully. Her uh, half-sister testified and talked about the same sort of incident that had happened to her. So that that was like corroboration? It was called a similar transaction uh, evidence, and she testified and talked about how the same man had molested her. 10 years before when she was about the same age, and the jury uh, believed them, and the jury convicted him, and the judge sentenced him to 50 years in prison. Mm-hmm. But that's, none of that is why this is my best case. 
The reason this is the best case that I can remember is because, of course, as my first case, it made the biggest impression, my first case I ever tried. How long was the trial? Oh, the trial only lasted three days. So it wasn't particularly long. Oh, but three days is still three days. <laughs> That's right. Three. It was long to me at the time. The jury verdict was a few hours, and that was, gosh, talk about an agonizing time, waiting with the victim and her mother and uh, wondering what the jury is going to do. Then you get the note that there's a jury verdict, and you go and sit down. Did they ask any questions at all? No questions. No evidence no read. Nope, nothing. They just deliberated. And I tell you what, I don't think since then I've ever had my heart pound so much so that I swear other people could hear it as I'm sitting there waiting at counsel table for the judge to take the bench, the note to be passed to the bailiff, and then given to the judge, then back to the bailiff for them to read the verdict. I mean, my heart was pounding, pounding, pounding. When you when you hear the expression, your heart was in your throat, I could feel my heart in my throat. Why do they do that? Why does the jury have to give the bailiff the verdict and then the judge has to read it and then he gives it back to the bailiff and the bailiff gives it back to the lead juror? Because the judge is making sure the verdict form is correct. Have they signed it? Does it does are the boxes checked, you know, guilty or not guilty? So the judge is check literally checking to see that the verdict form is filled out correctly. That's it. And if it's not filled out correctly? You know, I've never seen that happen. <laughs> but if it had happened, they would have just sent the jury back in to fill it out correctly. And boy, that would have been terrible. Yes. Because of course you have the victim in the courtroom also waiting mm-hmm. for the verdict. But what makes this case none of that is what makes it the best case. So when when they read the verdict, what what did they actually say? What was the victim's reaction? She cried. Her mother cried. Um, Her half-sister cried. I wanted to cry because I was so relieved. You know, you don't feel that sort of triumphant um, feeling that TV and the movies often portray. The prosecutor feels triumphant. You don't feel that because she, the child, is going to have to live with this the rest of her life regardless. She may feel a little safer. Her father's in prison, but she's still going to have to live with it. So the effects of the child sexual abuse that happened to her are still there. So I never really felt triumphant. I just felt relief um, and, and, and that fear that I had that he was going to walk free was now gone. I knew he was going to prison. And so really, it's just a massive feeling of relief, I think. All right. And then so with the victim, how did they fare afterwards? Well, you know, I think one of the most difficult things as a prosecutor is um, sort of knowing what to do after the case is over. And, you know, you of course, the child can reach out. She didn't. Her mother didn't. And I moved on to the next case just by necessity, because then you're dealing with this crushing burden of the next child and the next and the next and the next. And so it's very difficult to keep up unless you make an effort. And you always were, I worded the prosecutor too, that I didn't want to continue to traumatize her by making her think about it. So had she wanted to talk to me, clearly I would have at any time. But I didn't want to be the one to maintain that relationship in case it just continued to traumatize her. The interesting part of it, though, was that two years ago, it was actually it was just about a year and a half ago, it was almost exactly 20 years mm. since I had tried this case yeah. and since I had seen this child or heard anything from this child. I got a call on my cell phone. I didn't recognize the number. And because I'm, I now do consulting, I never ignore a phone call. Mm-hmm. So I answered the phone and she said, hi, Francie, it's KW. 
and I just was in shock. Really? So partly, you're... partly because I, how did she even find me? Yeah. I, it's not the same. Well, I didn't have that same phone number back right. then. Right. But did you immediately recognize who it was? Absolutely. We'll never forget her. I'll never forget any victim of any case I ever prosecuted, but especially KW because she was the first case I I ever tried. And she said. I get kind of emotional when I'm thinking about it, but she said, um, I've been following your career. Really? I'm so proud of you, she said to me. And I just wanted you to know that I listened to what you said when you told me that I could be whatever I wanted, that I could do whatever I wanted, that I would get through this. Because, of course, that is what I told her. Mm -hmm. She said, I wanted you to know I'm getting ready to graduate with a degree in criminal justice. I want to be a police officer because of you. Wow. And of course, I'm just sitting there in tears on the phone, trying not to sob and make her feel bad. But it was incredible and made it made my whole career. It was the greatest thing that literally has ever happened to me. You know, working for the attorney general, testifying before Congress, getting silly awards from the Department of Justice. Those things were wonderful and, and amazing. But nothing was as good as that phone call. Well, that is amazing because, one, that she had, even though she hadn't been in touch with you all these years, she had been thinking about you, that you really had a positive effect on her life, and you allowed her to grow up and be who she really is and survive and thrive and become the human being that she should have had the right to be without the molestation. That's exactly right. That's that's really great. I mean, that's unfortunately a rare occurrence yes. in this situation because, as you said earlier, there is sort of a you know uh, policy that that you don't want to sort of invade the victims' lives any more than you have to. Right. But you do. You're you're not a machine, right? No, so definitely you, not. You do actually build up an attachment and and you know a caring sort of feeling towards the people that you're representing. I mean, you're representing the people of the state that you're prosecuting for or the United States. And they're they're examples of those people that you represent. And it becomes a tremendous responsibility on you, right? It is. I mean, I think I always took that responsibility really personally and very seriously because you know, I used to I used to tell people that I thought the hardest thing I would ever have to do would be to look into the eyes of a child like KW who's disclosing to me the worst times of her life, the the most intimate uh, in her mind shameful, difficult, frightening experiences of her life and listen to that and talk to that child. I used to think that was the hardest thing I would ever have to do. Of course, now with with the benefit of hindsight of my career, the hardest thing I actually ever had to do was look at child pornography, because then I'm not just listening to a child tell me what happened to her, but you have to look at it happening. And most of the time, never find the victims, never know their names, and never know what's happening to them. And I think as a passionate prosecutor and advocate for children and for victims of crime, that was the hardest thing I faced as a prosecutor was all of the children I would never know, mm. but had to watch the abuse of 
Yeah, and one thing I'll say is that it's not just, I mean, child pornography is a particularly difficult and gruesome thing that we had to witness, but it's basically like any other crime scene. It is actually a depiction of a crime occurring. That's absolutely right. And, you know, uh, with all the crime scenes I've had to visit in my career, with all the crime scenes I've had to see pictures of in my career. I mean, each one of them affects you. And there are certain ones that you just can't get out of your mind. They're so horrific. But the children who are victimized and who are deliberately uh, documented in the midst of their victimization, it's just such a cruel thing. And just what really burns me up is when judges sometimes, and certainly defense attorneys almost all the time, allege that that it's a victimless crime. Oh, that, that it's only me. looking at pictures. And they just completely sweep over the fact that these children are being exploited, assaulted, raped, sometimes even killed. And it's just a it's just a horrific thing to to say is a victimless crime. It's just it's just onerous, outrageous, and completely false. Well, it is. And I think as a prosecutor, I always, you know, you sort of try to label, I'm a lawyer, right? I try to label things. What does it, what does it feel like? What is it like? And I always thought to myself of having to see these images of child rape is like every single picture is a little bruise on my soul. You don't really get over it. You don't forget it. Um, you never, you never forget it. And it's things like that call from KW that heals some of those bruises and makes you feel like I did make a difference. Because I think as a prosecutor and as an investigator and profiler, I don't know that we really think about that while we're doing it. Am I making a difference? And KW's call made me realize that I, I did. I made a difference. And that was, like I said, my proudest moment, I think. That's awesome. So, Francie, I'd like to give you an opportunity now to tell us, just to sum up, why this was your best case. I think it was my best case because of what happened 20 years after the case. Because certainly while the case was happening and while every case I ever prosecuted was happening, it's like you can't see the forest for the trees. It seems like you're just in the trenches, digging around in the mud, hoping to get justice for these children and these victims. And so I didn't really see it as my best case until a year and a half ago when KW called me. And I realized that, of course, I always knew justice in the macro sense was achieved here. He was convicted. He went to prison. He got sentenced to 50 years. He died in prison not too long ago. I have to say my bloodthirsty heart is happy about that. I'm glad he's no longer breathing the same air as that child. But it wasn't until the very end when she called and said, you made a difference. I did what you said. I came through it and you inspired me that it became my best case and my proudest moment. Well, thank you so much for telling us about this. And it's so great to have you on board. And I can't wait to talk to you more about other cases that you worked and unfortunately, the highs and the lows of being a prosecutor in the state and federal system in the United States of America. 
when I can't wait to talk to you about some of your best cases and worst cases. And really, I can't wait to talk to our current and former friends and colleagues around the country, maybe around the world, about their best cases and worst cases. Yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, it's because every time somebody tells me a story about a case that they worked, the intimate details, the intricacies, how things happened and how they fell apart and how they projected things to happen, but that's not what really happened. I, I think I learn every time I hear one of those stories, and I think our listeners are going to be fascinated by the insights that our friends and colleagues have. I agree. Crime and justice, they're hard, but they're fascinating. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. We'll be back next time. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Terrell Parham. Music by Simba Sumba. And hosted 